Welcome to Talaterra, a podcast about freelance educators working in natural resource fields and environmental education. Who are these educators? What do they do? Join me and let's find out together. This is your host, Tanya Marion. Today, my guest is Dr. Leanne Woolery, researcher, naturalist, educator, and artist. Leanne is also the founder of EcoArt Expeditions and the Citizen Artist Project. Leanne has also developed art based perceptual ecology, an interdisciplinary approach for conducting ecological field research. We talk about all of the above in this week's episode. Enjoy. Leanne, thank you so much for stopping by the show today to talk about your work, eco-art expeditions, your citizen artist program, and your art-based perceptual ecology. All very fascinating to me. So thank you so much for stopping by today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Recently, I attended a presentation that you gave at a national conference. And what stood out to me is your very different take on field ecology. You talked about walking transects and recording data, just like what a field biologist would do. There was a creative component to this, and it really got my attention. And when I read more about your work, read some of your papers, it's clear to me that you are field biologist, ecologist, through and through, and you have a long history of doing this type of work. So I'd like to uh, ask guests about their earliest experiences of enjoying nature. What is your earliest experience of enjoying nature? As a kid, I grew up in Missouri, in, in around the Missouri River area. And I was very fortunate that I had a grandfather and grandmother that were connected to the land in ways that other people in my life were not. And still today, I don't know people that were connected quite that way. At a young age, my grandfather used to take my brother and sister and I out in his vehicle, which at the time was in the 50s and, you know, a big old boat Plymouth car. It's like a tank. He owned about 190 acres outside of the community I had grown up in. And he was raising some cattle and and also hay. He was growing different fescue, different kinds of hay. But he would take us out in that big old tank and drive us all over the land while he was either chasing cattle or chasing horses, but in the sense of chasing them so that he could bring them into the barn rather than walking. That was his method of getting to them. And it just delighted me to have that kind of relationship with him and that we were close and got to go out and see what the land looked like. And then later, around third grade, my family actually moved out to that property. And so all through those formidable times of youth, I grew up having the freedom to be outside, be on the land, you know, really get to know all those 
organisms that became very friendly to me, live to me in my play, I guess would be what I describe it as, is being outside, being able to play and be free to, to roam in those woods and creeks and pastures. All of that was just exceptional. And then on top of that, my grandmother, she would go out and harvest different plants like lamb's quarters and um, burdock and to eat. You know, they were greens for her. And I just remember, I just thought that was natural. That's what we did. You know, we picked blackberries and walnuts and all the things that we could possibly have from nature that was became part of our diet and just part of what we did. I remember tasting the gooseberries and the the lamb's quarters. I don't remember being terribly fond of them at that point in life, but that was a part of what we did. So it just became a natural way of my encounter, my experience with nature. On top of that, I was a very imaginative child, and so I found a lot of comfort in nature. And to me, I still to today say that nature is my best friend. I can go anywhere on the globe, and as long as I'm outdoors in a natural setting of some kind, I feel comfortable. I'm happy to be there because these are the organisms that I grew up with and that I know probably better than people in some ways. I think some of the other things that I think about, which ties in very much with why I'm using art-based research methods in the work that I do, and that is that I was a very visual and spatial learner. So I was very sensory connected to the world around me. I've since learned this as an adult, that the way I experienced light and shadow, shapes, forms, uh, patterns color, all of those things were fairly, they they were not mainstream, for lack of a better word, of how people engage with the world around them. You know, I was not in the rational learner mode. (laughs) But yeah, that experience then of being outside, the world is alive with all of those elements. And so I was sensory connected to the world around me. And I think that's a lot of what shaped me as an artist. I admitted to the world at age 11 that I'm an artist and didn't even consider why I would possibly be saying that. It was just I'm an artist and moved on from there. But that sensory connection and art combination, I think, is really formidable to what got me going. When did nature become important to you, that you acted on it to do what you have done so far in your life? Well, I think all through um, grade school, high school, I was always making art of some kind. So in that sense, the art was about nature most of the time. But making that combination of that confluence of art and science, when did I do that? Probably in um, my undergraduate work, I started uh, art program with the intention of being a a children's book artist, illustrator. And that path got changed a bit in the process when I realized, oh, this is a different time from where we are today where children's book illustrators, I mean, children's books are magnificent. So um, I thought, okay, I'm going to do these drawings. It'll be an illustrative nature. 
with my art. But um, so there are different stepping stones along the way to get to where I could answer your question. Probably the culmination, that place where the idea really solidified for me was I had an undergraduate degree in graphic design. I had a graduate degree in art therapy from the School of the Art Institute in Chicago, thinking I was going to work along the lines of art, nature, healing. And I realized that really wasn't gelling, forming to exactly what I wanted to do, where I could bring that art science confluence together. And my greatest desire at that time was to start a program for young girls to get into the sciences. So I knew that I wanted to be full-time in the science, doing field research, using the arts, and I wanted to bring that kind of programming to young girls to get them along a path to get into the sciences. It's a different path than most people go, but it was one I knew, so it made sense to me that I could pursue that. So I knew I needed the legitimacy, for lack of better word, of a doctorate to get funding for such a program and also to be able to develop my ideas further. So it was probably at that point where, I don't know, it was in the 90s, mid-90s, where I said, I'm going to make this move and get a doctorate in environmental studies and then be able to really formulate what my ideas and thinking are into something that others could follow. So then did your freelance career begin at that point? And have you always worked as a freelancer? No, actually, my freelance career started much earlier. There were times during my undergraduate work where I would be hired as an artist to help illustrate someone's idea. And I remember working with a young parks person who was uh, developing a new park in Missouri, a state park, and needed some illustrations. So it started there. But the real forming of it actually started as a graphic designer. My mother was ill. I was living in St. Louis working for Washington University. And I needed to move back home to help take care of her. There were no job opportunities in my college town, hometown. So I had to just start something on my own or starve at that point, it felt like. Um, And it was just a natural movement. So I started a visual communications firm doing branding and marketing for the universities and hospitals and such, and then hired other freelancers um, to work alongside me. So it was This was in the early 90s. And there were so many things I learned from that of just go do it was one of them. (laughs) Here are the options. This is what path you need to follow. And the other was the, the pros of that situation where I had my own timing. You know, it was my schedule. It turned out that a 24-7 schedule was not viable. (laughs) So at some point I had to stop doing that freelance uh, position. But I learned a lot about how to manage your own time, how to make contacts and network and how to get the work done and where to find others like-minded that, again, wanted to be freelancers along. I was hiring artists, photographers, writers to help do the work. So that was my earliest 
career of being a freelancer. How did you come to create an art-based approach to field biology? I like that term you're using, and I've never had anyone say it quite that way. So I'm going to write that down. Field biology, I love that someone is actually naming what I do from your perspective. So thank you for doing that. <laughs> so how did I first start it? Is that mm -hmm. what you're asking? Mm -hmm. Oh, gosh. So as I said, when I had finished my graduate work, I realized that you know, the, the art and healing at that time were just on the, the front edge of bringing nature, art, and healing together. And I realized when, after practicing it for some time that this was not exactly what I was wanting to do. I really love field research, and I love just being outside, observing, paying attention, being aware, all those elements that go into observation, which is part of being a scientist and also an artist. And so I just kept moving the idea further, you know, and writing about it, doing the work, and again, realizing that I wanted to be able to formulate this in some way. So getting my doctorate, I spent eight years trying to find the language that I could speak with biologists about what I'm doing, because what tripped people up so much is when you bring the word art in, it kind of does one of the, you know, is a stopping point in the conversation with some scientists. Fortunately, much time has passed, and there are many people that are now open to this idea that, oh, creativity is the central point to what the artists and scientists do in common. You know, as a field biologist yourself, so creativity is involved. In, I, I would hope you'd say yes in everything you're doing. You're shaking your head. Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, and, and same. And, and creativity leads to innovation. And innovation is truly what we're all working towards in research. You know, what is the answer to our question? You know, how do we reach solutions that are creative solutions to help solve some of our environmental and social injustice issues? All those elements. So it made perfect sense for me to bring these pieces together. But it really has taken quite some time. And, and I'm not finished. I still meet people that it takes quite a bit of time to just have a conversation about why would you ever bring art into my science kind of situation. But again, the needles moved quite a distance here for us in others who are using the arts in their science research. Another way to think about it is art is a way of knowing. So when you think about other ways of knowing our world and specifically the research we're doing in the field, it made sense to me that arts, and I particularly use drawing and painting as my primary source of data collection. That becomes the data, the drawings and the paintings. But other people I've seen great success people have had with uh, performance, community performance, or audio, song in some way, music in some way dance. I've seen people, you may have seen on uh, line Dance Your PhD, which has now become a fairly big 
grouping of people that in, in well-known universities, they have their students dance their PhD because it's a different form of communication. And for me, visual communication, again, has been primary for my work and my own personal life, all of my life. And it's another form. What was the first thing you did to create this new approach, which you call art-based perceptual ecology? Was it an increasing tension around a bunch of observations, things that you've been observing? Was it a reaction to an event? What was that moment that said, okay, now, I do this now? I don't know if there was just a moment. I'll just be honest there. Um, I mean, I had been practicing these methods myself. Whenever I'd go out and study things and something would be an aha moment, I'd go, oh my gosh, that worked. Let's try this. And then that worked. But I think to answer your question, maybe one event, which at that time I hadn't named it, art-based perceptual ecology, but again, I was practicing it. Um, during my graduate work in art therapy, I became very fascinated with cognitive science and memory and how that works, how memory works in humans. And I went back to my home where I'd grown up on that land and started making some drawings there about the place. And what I realized is in that drawing process, in the act of putting marks on the page, it tapped into a memory that otherwise I hadn't had. And that was what the weather system was that particular day that I was recording on paper. You know, what, again, the shapes, the forms, the patterns, the light, the color of that pasture were, what was happening. I could hear the sounds of whatever birds were passing at that moment. And I thought, wow, this is just a wild thing that I can capture this moment in time and space of a place on the page. That was a huge learning opportunity for me. I wrote about it in a paper that I have on my website, but also it just, it was probably foundational for then spending eight more years of practicing that, formulating it, figuring out, yeah, uh, how does this work? And I still haven't figured it out, obviously, but I don't know if I ever will. But each person, new person that I work with has a different perception and we grow and learn and gain from that. And just some wonderful things happening in cognitive science right now in the field of cognitive science that's also helping me to have a better understanding of what is that communication that's happening right at that moment between place, the human as the investigator, and the mark-making. So what you just described, and what you describe in your paper that you just mentioned on your website, which is titled Knowing the Language of Place Through the Arts, it's really an a thorough explanation of what art-based perceptual ecology looks like when it's happening. Hmm. Good. Okay. That's how I get. And I, what I really like about your approach is that it's, it is an approach that makes all sorts of emotional and intellectual connections within the realm of field biology. And so to me, it felt, 
it's different. It's different because you know, like I mentioned earlier, you walking transects. I know what it's like to walk transects <laughs> through the desert. It was just a very uh, interesting approach to me, very unique novel approach, and I can see how it would turn people on to biology if you introduced field biology to them in this way. Oh, that's great to hear. My gosh, thank you. That's one of the major goals. How do we get people turned on to the sciences and mm-hmm. particularly field research? A couple things you just said I wanted to build upon here. Let me... Um, so the idea of emotional and intellectual, you described, bringing those elements together in field research. So one of the things I've been able to articulate a bit more this past year is how in that process, both of walking, which you described, so in a transect you're often often walking land, to and my biodiversity inventories are primarily focused on plants. So I'm walking, looking at plants, looking at the topography of the land. But in art-based research methods, which my work fits within, the investigator is the instrument. So I am the instrument as I walk along. And during that time, all these ideas are coming to me. So that intellectual piece as you're describing, but yet for me, it's also the sensory piece is what I tap into so much. So I make, I'm a sensory data collector walking on the land, you know, that's the instrument right there. And all of this information is coming into me as I'm walking. The piece that I add to that is in the art making there's, there are these moments of flow that happen where, as I'm making the marks on the page, which we're calling art or drawings, it's time to really work out these different questions that I have in my mind. I'm a very curious person, and I'm always investigating, which any scientist is doing. And therefore, with the mark making, it's kind of a meditative process, and I'm able to work out these different ideas in my mind, come up with different questions um, that may not have been there previously. I'm not just in my mind thinking about uh, IDing all these plants. That is a piece of what I do, but the art really opens up another opportunity and pathway to experience that place. May I ask you to walk us through a transect? I just, I just realized while we were talking that we know what a transect is, but listeners might not know what a transect is. So if you could, what the field biology definition of a transect is and how you apply your approach in a transect. So the approach that I like to take when possible, the land has to agree with it in the sense that there's not something in the way like a road or something. But I take a, a tape a measurement, lay it out for 120 feet is usually what I do, and then measure about six inches on either side of that line. This is when I'm working in the desert and there are not a lot of plants in that Uh, transect plot. And then I have a a template that I use that I've drawn up that shows at 120 feet, six inches across, and I start marking where every plant is and IDing it as quick as I can in the field, you know, an automatic response. I always carry my ID books, plant ID books with me, or I have other people with me that know more about that particular plant. 
If I cannot ID it at that moment, I do a sketch on the side of the page just of what leaf design is and um, any other pertinent information. And sometimes I'll take a photograph of it. I try not to photograph just because I like to do the drawing better. And for me, I have a deeper memory when I'm doing the drawing than if I just take a photo of it. But if need be, we photograph it. So again, we can go back once we leave the field and get online and look at something that we no one seems to know what it is. So I record in that way. And then again, I have a template where I will record once we finish those drawings. We have a legend as to what each of those marks on the page mean. And then we put in the Latin word for the plant, the common name for the plant, and then describe in one column the numbers that we found. That's how I do it. At what point did you create your citizen artist program? And what is your citizen artist program? Because I think it's a really neat idea. Well, thank you. I'm so glad to hear that. Citizen artist, I have been working towards, you know, all, all my professional life. I see the work that I've done up to this point all kind of culminating with citizen artists. But I named it about a year and a half ago. It was in a sense, a new package, a new iteration of art-based research methodologies, and specifically the art-based perceptual ecology research method that I've developed. So it's, it's a new packaging uh, with the hopes of bringing in a larger audience. I've moved back to the Arizona area, the desert area, two years ago, and with the hopes of being able to freelance. So starting my own, I had my business for many years, but I wanted to really focus on being full time. So I was no longer working for the university where I had previously worked. I was now just going to really put all my efforts into this, developing my curriculum and then developing citizen artist. So it's really a, a, a new packaging of, I'll just describe it as that. And why yeah. did I want to do that? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So most of my life, my professional life, I have worked with youth and kids. And when I moved back down here, I didn't have those connections. And I instead was working with an older population, which was so interesting to learn. I realized how important it's going to be in the next steps for me in my work to do multi-generational again. So bringing in all age groups to learn. So what is citizen artist? And I want to, although this is reading it, I realize it's really important to me to get it right. So I had this page open a minute ago. Let me see if I can get it back up to. So citizen artist is a new crowdsourced science opportunity that employs art-based research methodologies, has a mobile technology platform included with it, as well as curriculum and training. But the idea and the goal is to empower citizens who might not otherwise participate in crowdsourced science and to get them outside, to get them involved with the potential 
of positively transforming our current environmental problems. And so the primary goal is get citizens outside, get them involved in science research in the field, and to engage populations who either have been overlooked or have not otherwise participated in any kind of science-based research in the field as a participatory. We're trying to get a broader audience is the idea here. And the art-based is the idea that that, because it's another way of knowing, and it it, uh, brings in this whole idea of multimodal learning and tacit knowing. All those elements are important because, um, I mean, there's research that shows how the arts really provide a form of communication for some students that is important. So where do you want to lead this program? Do you envision doing this in parks, state parks, neighborhood parks? Where do you think you would want to launch this program? Well, the idea is that I'll be working in partnership with others. So It's really important that the partnerships are formed early on. So some of those that I envision and some that I've already had people contacting me and talking with me this last couple of months would be places like the national parks, the forest service could be potential of environmental education centers or science centers. There's a desire to work with native tribes. So, you know, that, Partnerships will be key. I won't be out launching any of these on my own. I feel it's very important to have established groups. They could also be communities. So one of the um, potentials of individuals I've talked with as a community activist, thinking about how they could get their citizens, their community involved in environmental and social justice issues This could be a way for getting youth involved in an issue that's pertinent to their community. But some of the things, too, uh, you had asked, what is the hope for for this program? So the hope for the citizen artist is, you know, again, the goal is to get outside and help people to be more aware of the natural world, to open new paths for their curiosity. So... Also providing an understanding of what research is. and Why do we want to gain new knowledge, you know, which is the foundation of what research is. There's also, there is an ethics to citizen artists. And, and that ethic is that the belief that when you are outside, you're gaining an experience with the natural world, you're gaining a knowledge of the natural world, you can't come to know it and understand it better. And when we come to know, just as an example, another person, you know, you you come to hopefully like that person and there may be relationship built and love that comes and is involved in that. Well, it's no different for being out in the natural world. All these life in the more than human world, there's so much to love about it. And the ethics behind this project is that if people come to know and understand the place they live in and come to love that place, they'll want to be good stewards and 
conserve and, and protect the places that we love. And, and this world is such an amazing place to live. And conservation, protection, good stewardship, all of those elements that humans can practice to support the more-than-human world is really important. Yeah. When you've led your citizen artist programs, what have you observed in the participants in your workshops? What has changed for them by the end of the workshop? That's challenging to say in words, describe it in words. I certainly can see it. There are moments um, that I would call aha moments that I see the participants experience. It may be that I hear exclamation of, wow, I've never seen that sky look like that before. Or I've never thought about the fact that I'm moving at, what, 11 miles a minute, even though I'm standing still on the earth, that shadow is showing me movement, you know, my movement. And yet I've never been aware of that phenomena. Just an awareness and opening to a perception that they had never experienced or noticed before. I think that's the largest piece. The other that I, and I mentioned this earlier, is the idea of flow. So feeling one with a nature, artists forever have described that, uh, various artists in their work, that when they're making their art, they feel like they're part of something larger. And in my three-day workshops or in my semester classes, I have students who will make that remark that, you know, out there being there every day, one of the exercises that I have in my semester-long classes would be students to develop what I call a non-traditional journal, uh, non-traditional nature journal. So they can't do traditional art journaling or writing journaling. They have to go out, experience nature in one place for 10 weeks, one time a week, or every day for 10 weeks if they so choose. But they have to find a way to respond to that experience that's creative, but not traditional. So as examples, one young woman found a spot that spoke to her in nature where she was doing her residency. And she developed a dance at that spot in response. And she drew out the dance steps on this I don't know, like 100-foot-long piece of paper, you know, of, of what she did. Another person was very involved in the sound, and they drummed their experience. Each of those people described what they were doing as getting into the flow of their work. So the art, being in nature, they became part of this larger, expansive world mm-hmm. by engaging in that way, experientially, and embodied, so taking the world into their body. In your paper that referenced earlier, you talk about the role of intuition. And you describe that intuition is the bridge between knowledge that is explicit and that which is silent. Can you talk a little more about the role of intuition in this process? 
Yes, and since writing that paper, I've come to choose the word tacit as opposed to silent. So the difference um, between tacit knowledge and explicit knowledge, explicit I could describe as I can reach out and touch you, or I can describe in words what this phenomena is that I'm experiencing in the landscape, or I can describe in a mathematical equation, you know, what that phenomena is. Tacit knowing could be best described as you experience something, you feel it in your body, but you cannot find traditional words or math equations or anything to, to describe it. You know it. And it's as solid as being able to touch something. And that's what intuition is then. It's that bridge between those two areas. It's something I f am fascinated with. People that know intuition, people that don't know intuition. And I think some people tap into that more thoroughly than others. You know, I'd love to get into the conversation of, is that something we all have? And does some people have been able to pursue it further or not? I don't know. But one of the things that I read quite a bit about early on still fascinates me is our ancestors, all the way back to hunter-gatherers, they relied on this sensorial knowledge, which we may call to intuition, of being able to read the language of the landscape. They had to know what they could eat and what would eat them, is one way I think about it. And if they didn't know that, they are not ancestors, <laughs> because they're no longer, they didn't last but the idea being that being able to read these multiple languages, know what the weather's getting going to be, know where the animals are, know where the plants are, and what, what, again, they can eat and can't eat. The idea being that became very much an intuition of their sensory knowledge of place. Yeah, because there's a lot of, when I read this section in your paper, there is a lot of things that you know, you, as you said, that you don't just can't describe or you can't just produce data and say, look, this is happening. I know it. I know it is. It's like when it rains around here, when the wind blows in a certain way, all of a sudden a wind comes up. I know that there's a rain cloud behind it. I know when the rain's going to start. I don't need the Weather Channel's radar on my app. <laughs> you know, I know when that water's coming. <laughs> right. You know, there's little things like that. I want to also add to that. So it's really important with the citizen artist and, and the art-based research that I do to work alongside in tandem with more Western science practices. Because... One, the piece to me is one suit doesn't fit all and working in tandem, then we have the mind, body, intuition, spirit, all of those elements combined are more apt to reach an innovative solution that leaving out co-creators such as those that are more multimodal learners spatial, visual, auditory, then we're leaving out a whole section of 
population that could help us to come to more innovative solutions to our environmental problems. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned partners earlier and how you wanted this program, your, your Citizen Artist Program, to grow with partners, with partnerships. You are launching a brand new Train the Trainer program in January. Who do you envision seeing themselves in this program and how do you want it to grow? Well, I'm going to answer first, how do I get there? How do I want it to grow? So some of the ways I'm approaching that is having really good models already out there. That's one way. I mean, my favorite model is Jane Goodall and her Roots to Shoots program, watching her grow from a researcher in the field to having global stretch. If I'm going to put my model out there, that she would be the one. She's an amazing woman, amazing person. So as a way to do that, uh, you know, how am I going to get there? I have a very strong board, a very diverse board of people. We'll have solid technology because we'll have a mobile platform as part of our how we do our data collection. I'm working on effective messaging. That's uh, challenging but important. Starting very small and then collaborating certainly with science research. So it may be existing research projects, but it also may be some new ones that I start with another researcher. The training, the curriculum, it'll all be research-based. So certainly that's important. And then being able within that to really provide an understanding of what research is. Why are we as citizens wanting to even do science research? What does that matter? But with that, you know, who, who might be some of the partners? I had mentioned those earlier, Park Service, Forest Service, possibly Native Tribes or Environmental Education or Science Centers. But for the initial launch that's coming up, I have some people that have already responded and interested. And we're going to start small with kind of pilot groups, um, a teacher on the West Coast that works with a forest school. So kids that get to learn in the forest every day, this would be an interesting population, I think, to get started with. Also had interest from a teacher who works with native tribes in Alaska as a potential, and then locally working with the park service on some inventories here in the Sonoran Desert. So trying to get some diversity of who our initial populations are and uh, really learn from that. I can, gosh, there's so much learning available just when you work with a pilot group that are willing to test out some of these ideas and such. So that's what the initial trainings will be about. And then a follow-up of this will be the research question. This is what we're working with. And then is all of our, our curriculum, our Mobile technology, is that all really responding and effective to what the learner needs? Are you still looking for partners at this stage for the pilot section of your program? Possibly, because life happens and we're in the middle of a COVID pandemic and one of those may not work out. So yes, I would still be very interested in, if people are interested in the pilot training, to contact me. That would be great. 
What's next for you? I just want to keep doing what I'm doing. I'm so excited to have this opportunity to share what I've been doing for a good portion of my life with others. The majority of my professional life, I have always worked for other people, pushing their issues or pushing their ideas, which I wasn't necessarily opposed to, but it isn't art-based perceptual ecology, it isn't citizen artist. And I've decided to redefine success for myself right now. Maybe as a freelance person, you encounter this for yourself or with others you interview, but redefining success this year, I've realized, is more about the people I meet and the experiences we can have together. It's not about making a living at this point. <laughs> that would be nice to, to have that opportunity, and it may be that I will move more towards a non-for-profit status and be able to write for grants and other kind of funding. But right now, I just feel really fortunate that I'm working for myself, that I'm on my own schedule. If I want to go out with friends and paint the landscapes one day just for fun, I can go do that. I don't have to report at 8 o'clock for somebody else tomorrow morning. My conversation with Leanne is only an introduction into the Citizen Artist Project and art-based perceptual ecology. To learn so much more, please visit Leanne's website at ecoartexpeditions.com and be sure to download her paper. If you'd like to reach out to Leanne about potential partnerships, please contact her through her website or through the link that you'll find in the show notes. Alaterra is a podcast for and about independent educators working in natural resource fields and environmental education. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with friends and colleagues. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Tanya Marion. <music>